Welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. If you work in a medium to large company, your CEO wants the organization to be more innovative. All the surveys about such things tell us that's true. And if you're in a smaller organization or maybe on your own, you still care about innovation. But how can you bring more innovation, or let's face it, in some cases, anything that looks like innovation into the organization? In some form, this is what companies' leaders have talked with me the most in the last year, incorporating more innovation into their work. It is something we especially need now. I believe a key paving stone on the path to better innovation, aka more products that customers love, what we talk about here all the time, a key paving stone is adopting an experimentation mindset and conducting fast, low-cost experiments. And that is what our guest, Dr. Stefan Tomke, Harvard Business School professor and researcher, is discussing with us. He is an authority on the management of innovation and the use of experimentation. But first, you can find a summary of everything we discuss, all the key points, at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 281. And guess what? You also find an answer to a bonus question that I asked Dr. Tomke, and that is, what are some myths about experiments? Now, it's not in the recorded interview. You're only going to find it at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 281. Check it out along with the summary. Now, on to the discussion. Stefan, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovators. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Chad. You research a very interesting area for us as product managers, and that's uh, experiments and running experiments in organizations. And uh, we'll get into why this is interesting to me, I'm sure, but it's a very important area. Um, just tell, tell us about that a little bit about for innovative organizations or those organizations that want to be innovative, why is it important to do experiments? Well, you know, my research is actually all about innovation and that's kind of how I came to experiments. Uh, one of the big challenges, of course, in innovation, as you know, very well is, is uncertainty, <clears throat> you know, uncertainty. And when we are trying to innovate in organizations, we face different kinds of uncertainties. First of all, there's R&D uncertainty. And I've had the pleasure of working with lots of R&D organizations, and that's kind of what they usually struggle with. Uh, then there is scale-up uncertainty. You know, if you're trying to scale up a production, if you're customer-facing, there's customer uncertainty. Do the customer want what we're actually creating? Are they willing to pay for it? And then there's business uncertainty. What kind of investments do we have to make uh, in order to have a good ROI and all that? So there's lots of uncertainty around. Chad, how do we usually deal with uncertainty? Well, we'll rely on our experience. Uh, but one thing I've learned in researching experimentation in more than uh, 25 years, it turns out that we're more often wrong than we're right. In fact, in the online world, which I looked at very closely, we're wrong about nine out of 10 times. You know, that's what I found for a lot of companies. Then you may say, Chad, to saying, well, what about big data? You know, we've got all the data analytics around and so forth. Well, Yes, it can help, but there's a bunch of problems here as well. And that is, first of all, uh, if, uh, if something is very novel, there, there's no data around because if there's a lot of data around, someone would have already done it. 
And uh, the next problem, of course, is when I analyze a lot of data, you know, I get correlations. Uh, but if I'm a manager, I want to know about causation. I want to know if I give my salespeople an incentive, I want revenue to go up. I don't want to have correlations. I want causations and, and so on. So, so what's the answer to all this? Of course, it's experiments. You know, if you run experiments, experiments kind of help you with all these kinds of things. In fact, I always tell folks that experimentation is the engine of innovation. Hmm. You know, you can't imagine, you know, being an innovator without experimenting. I just, I don't know about you, but I, I can't even imagine, you know, sort of doing that. And so, so the question then is, okay, if, if experimentation is the engine of innovation, how do I do it most effectively? How can I get sort of the most, the biggest bang sort of for, for the buck sort of if I invest sort of in an experimentation capability? Mm -hmm. and, Before you go to yeah. most effective, because I, yes. I definitely want to spend the bulk of our time on that, but this notion that, you know, you can't do, you can't do innovation without experiments yeah, um, that has not been widely shared, and I don't think it was actually until we saw the lean startup kind of you know come out as a book and as a movement yeah. that people started really going, oh yeah, we we can like test things before we actually put them into the market to know if it's going to work or not. Um, I'm just curious, how does your research? I, I don't know where you intercepted you know the lean startup stuff and just how that works together. You know, I'm an old guy, you know, so I've been around for a long time, I, you know, so, so I'm an engineer by training. In fact, uh, I got started in experimentation in 1990 when I had, a, you know, I, I was working actually as an engineer in a, in a, in a semiconductor factory and I actually got an assignment that I, uh, that I couldn't solve without running experiments. So the whole kind of experimental literature uh, has been around for a long time, I mean, more than 100 years, but it's been sort of used in more... I would say R&D heavy environments, you know, R&D product development. In fact, I wrote my first book about experimentation in 2003. And I think it's now only recently, and as you said, with sort of some of the, you know, startup movements and, and Eric Reese's book and all that, that it's kind of caught up sort of in a more general way, that the general awareness has kind of gone up. But in sort of the R&D and product engineering world, We've always been aware of this. We've always used sort of experimentation as a way to get uncertainty resolved. Good. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of popularized this notion a little bit, but you know, you still yeah. run into the person that says, yes, I'm an innovator. I'm working on the solution. I'm not telling anyone about, about it yet because that's a big secret, but it's going to be great when it comes out. <laughs> and like, well, what are you doing to validate along the way? What kind of experiments are you doing to know it's going to be great when it comes out? Well, Chad, and then this is one of the things that I think often, you know, uh, confuses people. You know, it's not experimentation versus data or experimentation versus experience. It's, you know, it's uh, experience plus data plus experiments. In fact, a lot of the companies that I studied sort of for my book, uh, they do all the kinds of things that normal companies do. You know, they run focus groups. Uh, they do qualitative research. They have psychologists on staff. They look at behavioral science. I mean, they do all the kinds of things. The only difference is that the companies that don't experiment, they take all that sort of research and then they run to market mm -hmm. with all that research. And it's not tested. And, uh, and the experimenters kind of insert that additional step. That is, we use all that information to generate hypotheses, mm -hmm. which are then tested by an experiment. And then we find out that even the experts are wrong most of the time. And then they kind of go back. And so that's kind of how the cycle works. And then, of course, 
the ones who don't experiment will eventually find out that they got it wrong, except now it's really expensive because now you got a product out in the market that nobody wants and you just maybe just invested $50 million in it. And, and now you have to retract. And, and we see this over and over again. So that's, I think, the difference, that additional step in the middle or, you know, for companies that do thousands of experiments, many sort of additional steps sort of in the middle to kind of, and not to validate, but to kind of test sort of their hypothesis and refine it and then experiment again and again. Okay. Are there companies doing thousands of experiments? Tens of thousands. Who would be an example? Uh, the, by the way, all the companies that we know very well in the online world, we got uh, Amazon, mm -hmm. we've got Microsoft, we've got Netflix, uh, booking.com if you mm -hmm. travel if you know if you had used any of these platforms in the last 24 hours or even 48 hours you are part of their experimentation ecosystem you just don't know it right i i, I do recall it doesn't happen much because so many people hit amazon so often but one day i was must have been one of the 0. 0.0001% that saw a completely different homepage like, wow, what, what, what is this about, right? And I'm not sure if I like this, and then the next time I go, it's back to the normal one. Right? Well, in yeah. fact, Booking.com has quadrillions. I mean, quadrillions are millions of billions of, of variations of homepages around landing mm -hmm. pages. There's not one landing page. And so if you got, if you line up like, you know, 20 of your friends and you all open up sort of a landing page at the same time, chances are actually very likely that you all end up mm -hmm. on different landing pages. And, and why? Well, because they're running experiments on you. Uh, Facebook does it as well. And mm -hmm. sometimes Facebook even got into hot water because of that. So, uh, so there are lots of them. But, but by the way, now you may think, oh, well, it's a digital thing, right? So it's only these online companies. Not true either. If you walk into a, a store and our companies, uh, Walmart runs experiments, actually highly disciplined experiments in, in a brick and mortar. Uh, Kohl's retailers runs experiments. So there are lots of physical retailers as well that run experiments. And then on, on live customers, I mean, that's sort of the difference. And of course, engineering organizations do this all the time, but they often don't run it on live customers. You know, they would run it in a lab or they run it one, would run it in a simulation, you know, a computer simulation or something like that. Yep, that makes good sense. Okay, and you were going to take us through how, how do we construct an experiment, right? The, uh, I kind of cut you off earlier to go a different direction for a moment. What is the structure of a good experiment? Well, let's, let's start with the gold standard, you know, okay. and then we can always relax things a little bit from the gold standard. You know, if you think about sort of what an ideal experiment looks like, in an ideal experiment, you are the tester, Chad. And what you want to do is you want to separate an, what we call an independent variable. So that is the presumed cost. For example, that could be the, uh, the bonus that you would give uh, to your sales force from a dependent variable. And dependent variable is the observed effect, right? So that would be, in this case, say, the revenue uh, of that sales force. And, and you want to kind of, uh, you want to separate those two while holding everything else constant, right? You want to have everything else constant. You just want to change that one variable. And then when you want to manipulate that sort of variable, that one variable, so for example, I increase sort of the bonus to observe changes in the dependent variable, which would be again, revenue. And then based on what you observe, you then would make a conclusion about cause and effect. 
Now, you can immediately see that there are a few problems, you know, as you're trying to do this in the real world. First of all, you know, if once the person knows that they're being experimented on, you know, they may not behave the same way than, you know, if, if they were completely sort of uh, unaware of it. So we have a thing which we call blind. So, you know, so the person sort of doesn't know that they're... So when you go to... Uh, to booking.com or when you go to Facebook, you don't actually know that you're part of an experiment because they don't want you because if you knew know, you bring biases into the experiment. Sometimes we even, and that's kind of really the gold standard, that's what we do when we do drug development, we do double blind. So even the experimenter, you know, doesn't even know sort of who's being experimented on. So you, you make sure that no biases come into it. Then you find another problem. The other problem is uh, that things do change all the time. You know, that, you know, sometimes maybe the weather's a little different or maybe the salespeople, you know, it's at the end of the month versus the beginning of the month. Uh, you know, the salesperson had a bad day. Maybe the salesperson has a cold. I mean, there are lots of things going on all the time. And we need to kind of make sure that all the other things that are changing, other than the variable that we're interested in, don't pollute the experiment. And uh, so the way we deal with that is we do things like randomization. So what in randomization, the idea is, that we basically take all these other things that we may or may not even know about and we distribute them evenly across sort of the different sort of people that we're experimenting on. So it's not that we take bias out of it, but everybody gets kind of an equal share of the bias so it doesn't influence the experiment in an undue way. That's why we randomize. So that's kind of the gold standard. And then you know, you can now have different ways of experimenting. You can have the so-called A-B test, which I'm sure you've heard about, where you basically have A is your control, and then B is basically your control plus A change. Uh, you can have things called multivariate experiments, where you change a lot of things at the same time, and, and so on and so on. So there are lots of different kinds of experiments around that will then help you to, again, to determine cause and effect, which is really what you're interested in. <laughs> We'll get back to talking to Stefan in just a moment. But first, companies need their product managers to be superstars so they more consistently develop products customers love. To make that happen, they choose the RPM experience, the Rapid Product Master Experience. It's a virtual experience taking place over nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week. And it has always been that way. It was designed from the very beginning as a virtual experience. Why? because that is the most effective way to help product managers change their behavior and be the superstars they can be and that the organization needs them to be. Now, with so much of training moving online and often you know, fumbling in the process, frankly, I want you to know that the RPM experience is the proven way to supercharge a product management group. And it just happens to be virtual and remote worker friendly. And it always has. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. You won't regret it. It is a great way to supercharge a group of product managers. Now, let's get back to talking with Stefan. Okay. I think an example might help us uh, make this a little more here's concrete. A, here's, a, here's, here's an example. Okay. okay. Some example. And here's also an example where our intuition often goes wrong, Chad. Imagine you've got this cool restaurant, Chad. Mm -hmm. and uh, you're running this restaurant, and one fine day, you know, one of your best customers comes in and says, you know, Chad, I've been looking at your menu, and I've been going to other restaurants in the city, and I've actually seen a couple of restaurants that have a very different menu, and I actually think if you change your menu, 
I think you can double your revenue. Now, Chad, now how do you how do you find out whether that's actually true, right? You could either ignore the guy and just continue to do what you do, but you're probably intrigued. You know, maybe there's something to this. Now, the way you would probably, and most, most people would do it, I would probably then kind of maybe pick a month in which I run sort of the restaurant in my normal menu, and then I would change the menu, and then I would run it for another month on the new menu, and then I would look at the data from that one month and the other month, and I compare the two months, and then I look at the revenue, and then I kind of try to figure out sort of which menu is better, except it's the wrong way to do it. Because, you know, a lot of things could have changed in the other month other than the menu. It could have been that there is maybe a construction site nearby, which makes it harder for guests to go to the restaurant. Could be that another restaurant opened up nearby. There are lots of things going on. The weather, maybe it was really cold. Nobody showed up. There are lots of things going on. And uh, that's what we, so the, the, the way where most people would think about it, they call it an observational study. We observe that's the way we get to correlations. We can correlate things, but it doesn't tell us about Coselli because of all the other variables that sort of happen. So what's the right way to do it? You're probably thinking, Jeff, right? So, well, the right way to do it is to do both menus at the same time. And what we want to do is what we'll do is, you know, we have the restaurant, we would kind of randomly divide the restaurant in sort of two different sort of areas. Someone is standing at the door with a coin and as the customer's coming in, you're flipping a coin. So you randomize, and based on the coin flip, you assign them to one menu or the other menu. The, the chefs in the kitchen flip a coin, and you assign the chefs sort of in the kitchen, sort of different, and so forth. But you get the idea that you, know, you actually have a control here, and you have a treatment, you have the experiment, and you kind of randomize in terms of who gets to kind of be exposed to what. Mm -hmm. And that's the right way we do it, because then it's kind of under the same conditions and the biases are randomized. So that would be an example, a simple example of how you would apply sort of some of that thinking. Yeah. And, and part of the control there, like you talked about the chefs, yeah. you'd want to have similarly skilled chefs offering food from both menus so that that's not another factor in this. Or you randomize, you know, that's the beauty of it. You know, one way, if I'm a scientist, a mad scientist, and I want to run this in a lab, I would try to control everything, right? Then I don't have to worry about all these things, but I can't do that in a restaurant because there's a lot of stuff going on. Another way to deal with it is just to randomize. So then I have all this variation that's going on naturally in the environment, but I don't sort of bias the control or I don't bias the treatment. I just evenly distribute all the biases across both. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. kind of a, the idea of an experiment. The experiment, quite honestly, Chad, it's also a very special year. You know, it's, I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, in 1620, uh, a guy named Francis Bacon, a philosopher, actually wrote a very famous book uh, called Novum Organo. And uh, it was basically sort of a new way of instrument for building and organizing knowledge, which is now known as the scientific method. Hmm. So 400 years, just 400 years for the scientific method to get to management. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and that's kind of the idea. And 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 even then, back then, the the experiment, the humble experiment, has been the engine of the scientific method as well. And that's kind of what this is all about. Yeah. Yes, setting up the experiments to uh, identify hypotheses and how variables are related to each other. Absolutely. So if we're in the innovation field here and we're trying to tackle something new that mm -hmm. we want to do. Yeah. Um, 
how do we go about identifying the hypotheses that need to be tested? Um, are so, we go ahead? Yeah. So, so, so the ability to write down a good hypothesis is really important here. Yeah, I can have the best experimentation engine, but if it's garbage in, garbage out, you know, it's not going to help me. And uh, you know, so I think it's really important, you know, for an organization to kind of sit down and to figure out what uh, a good hypothesis looks like. Now, hypotheses come from lots of different places. A hypothesis can come from qualitative research. You know, we're doing focus groups and these sorts of things. A customer insights, you know, we're observing customers and they do some really surprising things. And then you come up with a hypothesis, which you then test. It can come from data mining. Uh, sometimes it can even come from intuition. Lots of different places. Uh, uh, guesses usually don't make sort of good hypotheses because they just seem to be, you know, it's usually good hypotheses are sort of better hypotheses are usually more grounded in facts, you know, rather than just random things that you kind of just throw out. And uh, and these are important sources for, for these kinds of hypotheses. Now, a good hypothesis needs to have a, a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, it needs to kind of identify possible causes and effect. You know, you need to you need to like know what the variables are. Um, it it you have to be able to falsify it. And what does it mean? You can actually you need to be able to kind of run a test that shows that the hypothesis is false. Now, if you set up a hypothesis that you cannot falsify, then the whole process becomes kind of meaningless. And then you need to be also, it needs to be quantifiable as well. You know, you need to measure something. You need to measure a KPI or something like that. So, so, so I mean, let me give you an example. Coles, uh, the department store, uh, you know, someone kind of was working with Coles and tells them, if you open up your stores an hour later, uh, you know, you can save, you know, X millions of dollars in, you know, any first year finance student can do this analysis. It's pretty straightforward, you know, just run the numbers. But the dilemma then for a company like Kohl's would be not the cost savings, we can figure this out pretty quickly, is but what's the impact of revenue? That's what's uncertain here. And now how do we normally do this? Well, without testing, we could just open the stores an hour later, all the stores and kind of see what happens. Uh, or we can just run a set of experiments. So the hypothesis here is actually quite crisp. It could be opening our stores one hour later has no impact on daily sales revenue. Okay, so you know what the variables are, you know what to measure and all sorts of things. And let me contrast this with a bad or a weak hypothesis. A weak hypothesis would be, for example, we, we can extend our brand up market. It's a, an interesting debate to have but it's hard, you know, what do you actually measure? How do you prove that it's wrong? I mean, there are a lot of kind of issues with this. It, this could be a starting point that could lead to a hypothesis, but in itself is not a hypothesis. So one of the things that companies do that, that do this really a lot, you know, they train their employees in how to write a good hypothesis as part of their onboarding process. They give them templates and they do all these kinds of things to make sure that that, that you get good quality hypothesis actually going into the experimentation engine. Okay, so what is the answer for a call? Do we, you know, randomly pull out a few stores and open them later? They did that. Yes, okay. they, they did that. They randomly selected, you know, uh, a number of their stores, and they did all the things that I just told you in the restaurant example. Mm -hmm. 
And they ran it that way, and, and the answer came back, and it turned out that it, it actually didn't have a significant impact on revenue, and that gave management then the confidence to actually launch it without being nervous and biting their nails, you know, right. <laughs> hoping, you know. So I always tell them, you know, an experiment gives you the confidence to be bold. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I think with, without the experiment, I think it's just gambling. <laughs> You're just gambling, you know, so, but it gives you this additional sort of kick, you know, that you can be confident about it. And because sometimes, again, sometimes, many times your intuition can get in the way. I don't know, you're familiar probably with Ron Johnson, the example of Ron Johnson from Apple. I don't know if you've heard about that, Jess. Not yet. It's a, it's a, it's a great example of uh, experience getting in the way. So Ron Johnson and Steve Jobs together created the Apple Store most successful retail concept probably in the last two decades or so. Mm-hmm. So Ron Johnson was the equivalent of a retail god. <laughs> and uh, so, so J.C. Penney kind of sees this and says, well, we'd like to have what they're having. And so they offer him a big package and they tell him, why did you come to J.C. Penney? We'll make you CEO and we'd like you to do what you did for Apple for us. And he comes in and, of course, he, he doesn't wait and he gets, gets going and he does all the things that work so well for Apple. You know, he does away with checkouts. He, you know, he gets rid of uh, discounts, coupons, and all those sorts of things. 18 months later, J.C. Penney is fighting for his survival. Ron Johnson is out of his job, and he goes back, and, and, uh, and, and they're just trying to get back to normal the way things were before he joined. So what went wrong? Well, he, well first of all, you know, what people told me there, they didn't test. You know, he just assumed, which I think it's human, he assumed, you know, if, if you're the retail god, Chad, you know, you assume that you know a lot more about retail than probably anybody else in the world. And he just followed his experience, except, you know, the customers who go into a JCPenney are just very different than the customers that walk into an Apple store and they expect very different things. And maybe a test, an experiment would have told him, would have showed him that maybe... That's not the smartest thing to do. And later on, actually, you know, Ron Johnson has talked about this in public. And, you know, he considers himself actually to be a quite humble person. And but he called it situational arrogance. Mm. You know, so the emphasis is on situational arrogance. So he's generally not an arrogant person. But sometimes you get caught up in a situation where you're just so damn confident about what you believe to be true. And, and you said, what's the point of testing? It just slows me down. And then right. you pay a big price for that. Yeah, I, I do know that story. It's a very sad story about that. Yes. And not learning about the environment first before making changes. But he was delivering on what he was asked to do, which is, you know, make us like Apple, right? So Exactly. Well, um, So lately I've been seeing all, the, all these ads on uh, Carvana, which I don't know the company specifically except from the ads, right? But it looks like... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a company that will bring a, you can buy a car and it'll bring it delivered to your house, or they have this kiosk for cars mm-hmm. that you can go to. So I imagine if we were starting to bounce this idea around and think about, yeah, w- would people buy a car from, you know, this very different model that they couldn't really co- go to the lot and just walk around and see cars, but we're going to put them in this big kiosk and, and we're thinking, you know, maybe everyone's already learning about cars online and they don't really need to have that personal experience. And I might even just buy them without seeing them if we can bring it to their house and just drop it off. Yeah. 
So, so we're, you and I are kicking this around. This is our, our new business idea. Lots of maybes. Exactly, right? And yeah. so there's, there's some things in there that we would want to test. Yeah. Right? So, so let's walk down that path a little bit together. Um, and you help me with this. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, maybe the first thing is, um, I guess the ultimate question is, would people buy from just doing research online about the car and then be willing to have it delivered without ever taking it for a test drive or anything like that? Yeah. So, so one thing I sort of recommend, and this is kind of, you know, when we talk about the role, what the role of sort of a, an executive or a leader is in an organization here is you got to start out by kind of what, I, what we have to set what I call the grand challenge here. So what's the big question that you're trying to solve? And then uh, you, you can kind of then allow people to break down sort of that big challenge or the big question into testable hypotheses. So it's not one big hypothesis. You got you to gotta break it down to sort of manageable sort of chunks of hypotheses that you can then individually pursue. So that would be task number one. What are sort of the specific things that kind of come out of that? You know, write down what it is, the hypothesis. And there's probably a lot of little sort of things here that you need to test, you know, lots of touch points that would be involved in this kind of experience. And you're going to have to think about all these touch points, you know, maybe first sort of in isolation, but then later on sort of thinking about them together because there are sort of interaction effects between these touch points as well. So that's kind of how you would go about this. Okay, and start formulating yeah. experiments for that. Um, yes, and, and then you run the experiments. And then, you, of course, you need a good tool, a platform that allows you to do that. You don't want to invent sort of the tool every single time. And you want to be in a situation where you've got a tool where, you know, someone writes on a hypothesis in the morning and they'll run the test by lunch uh, and then they'll have to wait. You know, now it turns out that, you know, you have to kind of follow the statistics here, you know, that it may take, depending on how much traffic you have, it's an online, you know, platform you may have to wait, you know, two weeks or so before you get uh, a result that, that is reliable mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for, for statistical reasons. Um, and uh, yeah, so you're going to, so it's going to take a little bit of time, but you, you want to be in a situation where people can kind of keep on launching these kinds of things. And then, mm -hmm. you know, once you keep on launching it, and even though it may take two weeks, but you're going to have a steady stream of results that are coming in sort of that people will process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's the online, you know, digital example. And I'm thinking exactly. about, you know, Carvana. Maybe, maybe one of the tests I do, and this might not be the first one, but you know, maybe I do a pop-up shop, and I start, I find a retail location, and I stake it out for two weeks, and I just have lots of pictures of cars and information about them. And you know, Intuit did this when uh, when they had sort of an interesting observation. So Intuit sort of had their, you know, their their so small business software, and. Um, and somebody noticed that, you know, they, they get a huge inflow of new customers, you know, uh, right before they have to make payroll. Hmm. And uh, the problem is, of course, it used to be that, you know, when you come in and you're trying to set up payroll, it usually takes days because Intuit has to approve all this and so forth. So people would come in a couple hours before they need to make payroll. And then they realize it takes days for them to even set it up and they can't make payroll. So someone had this idea, can we maybe figure out a way? to streamline this process so they could actually go in and then make payroll. Now, what they did then is they went out and they did some market research. So they asked their customers whether they'd be interested in that kind of feature, and almost everyone said no. You know, there's no, no, there's no demand for this sort of thing, and they, uh, they didn't quite believe that. You know, we know very well when we do focus groups that people don't always do what they say. 
And, and then they came up like the equivalent of the pop-up that you suggested, Chad. So what they did, someone said, why don't we actually just create an option on our, on our software that says, do you want to make payroll now? And, and, and they just ran this and there was nothing behind it. They had to, hadn't actually developed the feature and they just wanted to see how many actually people would click on that. And lo and behold, a lot of people clicked on this thing. And that told them that the market research was completely wrong. And because they just looked at the behavior, what people would actually do. They then, with that sort of insight, they went back and developed the feature. It ended up being actually a big deal for them, led to a lot of sort of new business growth and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And what a valuable insight, right? That they noticed that uptick in sales yeah. and made the relationship and went down that path. Okay. It often goes that way, Chad, you know, that you have some sort of a surprising insight. So you have to have uh, what I call curious employees who kind of sit around and they see these things. Isn't it odd that, you know, a lot of these new customers come in, you know, I don't know, half a day or even hours before they need to make payroll, you know, and, and kind of think about this and said, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something there, like there's a demand there. So you have to have people who think rather than saying, oh, you know, why do they come in? They can't make payroll anyway. And, and then use that as sort of a, a launch pad, maybe for a new product or a new product feature. No? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, th this is really good. And I'm going to transition us to an innovation quote because <laughs> I love those. Uh, lots of good insights about experiments. For, for me, the bottom line here on, on the experiments is that we need them. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, like in Tuit's example, they're like, oh, let's just go build a payroll system and we'll see who buys it. First, let's figure out what the interest is before yep. we actually build it. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. So there are different kinds of experiments, Chad. I mean, just briefly, you know, there. What, what I would say, there are two kinds of experiments. You know, one is maybe kind of an exploratory kind of experiment, mm -hmm. which is kind of like the Intuit example, where you just want to know directionality. And then the other experiments that we talked about, about your landing page and so forth, these are, to me, like optimization experiments, where you kind of optimize in experiments, you optimize touch points. There are very different kinds of experiments. You design them differently, and they give you different insights. Uh, you know, one gives you insights about cause and effect in optimization in the discovery kind of exploratory experiments. You don't get cause and effect. You just get like a general insight saying, isn't it interesting that there is a lot of demand for this? And then you got to go sort of to the next level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. Excellent. And what, what is the innovation quote you have for us? And why did you choose that one? So I have a quote from uh, one of my favorite, uh, favorite scientists, Richard Feynman, uh, who was... Uh, a genius, a real genius. In fact, I think that there was a book written on him called Genius. And uh, he was a really colorful person. You know, I mean, many of your listeners may have heard about him. You know, he was uh, not just a physicist. He was a, he was a fantastic teacher, storyteller, and so on. But here's the quote. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are, who made the guess, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. Hmm. Uh, it is, again, the brilliance of Richard Feynman. Now, I like that quote for a number of different reasons. First of all, if you have one of the smartest, so if one of the smartest persons who's ever lived on this planet, making that admission that even he, it doesn't matter what my name is, even he, you know, will be wrong if the experiment shows him wrong. I think all of us should be modest enough to kind of admit that we can be wrong as well and that we need to listen to the experiment. 
Uh, it also sort of tells us something about hierarchy. You know, we have this thing, you know, uh, in the community of experimenters, they have this thing called hippos. They call the hippos highest paid person's opinion. And we know that hippos are the most dangerous animals in the world. <laughs> and, and, and so when you sort of think about hierarchy, it also sort of says something about it doesn't, so I often paraphrase this, you know, it doesn't matter who's got the most beautiful PowerPoints. It doesn't matter who's got the best titles. It doesn't, you know, if it disagrees with the experiment, again, it's wrong. And so it needs, it also kind of says that, you know, even the people who are really sitting in a corner office need to kind of go back down and, and have to admit and, and be humble and go into a meeting and says, listen, I don't know. And, and when they're wrong, they need to admit that they're wrong. And they often don't know it any better than any of their employees. Right. And so it requires kind of a different kind of leader uh, to, to make that kind of admission. And so I, I pull my head now, you know, Feynman said this in the context of science, which is probably even more, <laughs> more hierarchies in science. And, 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 and I think he, he sent a message there, you know, how important the experiment is. And I think that translates perfectly into the corporate world or startups or whatever. Yeah, it does. When, when we don't have data from the experiment, then we're making decisions based on opinion. And yes. data is much more powerful. So do the experiments. Thank you for sharing that quote, and thank you for sharing the information. Uh, you do have a book that talks all about this in more detail, Experimentation Works. How can people get their hands on that and also find out about the work that you're doing there at Harvard and your research? Yeah, so Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments, is available in all the online bookstores, you know, conventional Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so forth. But uh, it's also in physical bookstores. You know, I encourage people always to go to physical bookstores, not just do things online. And, you know, we have, oh, by the way, physical bookstores are rising again. You know, they're great sort of community places for community to get together. And so it's in those stores as well. Uh, people can learn more about uh, my research, uh, first of all, by getting the book and reading about the book so they fully understand where I'm coming from. It's not just conceptually. It's also a how-to kind of book, uh, you know, all the different things you need to think about. Uh, I am uh, at Harvard Business School. I'm easy to reach. I'm very public. Uh, my email is very simple. It's just the letter T at HBS, like harvardbusinessschool.edu. Uh, I, I have a website uh, uh, at Harvard Business School. You can find it just typing www.thomkey.com. It will take you directly to Harvard Business School. I always list everything that I write about, and I've written a lot of papers about this. Uh, you can friend me on LinkedIn. Just tell me, you know, where you met me, so I can make the connection. And so, lots of places, you know, Chad. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, and I'm accessible. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you're not going anywhere. And I appreciate the accessibility. I hope some listeners reach out to you. And if nothing else, thank you for the information. That's great. And thank you for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. That was a great discussion with Stefan. And remember that bonus question that I asked him that we didn't have in the recording? That was, what are some myths about experiments? You'll find that along with the details of everything else we discussed at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 281. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.